Hey everybody, this is Greg Pettix, and you're about to listen to the 45th issue of Fantasy Comic Book Editor League. This is the episode that really uh, crosses over into the psychological um, definition of our podcast. Because uh, as you know, uh, when I first started this podcast, I couldn't find comic books under categories. Because I'm a moron. And so I saw psychology and I figured, that's kind of apropos. Because the whole idea behind this podcast, that I uh, have this very well, well, not well, overdeveloped imagination uh, in which I uh, have fantasy worlds I exist in to ignore reality. Uh, I make up these elaborate um, worlds to live in involving comic books where I'm a comic book editor. And uh, it's a little weird. Well, it's very weird. I don't know many anyone else who does this. But uh, I had a really bad week. Uh, I got kicked in the nuts twice in one night. And uh, just lots of bad things happened. And so I got off work today. I was washing dishes at my job, like crying. Mixing the salt of my tears with the simple green and the soap. And uh, I hope it didn't mess up the plates any. But um, I came home. I realized I had to uh, run away to the to the womb-like nature of this podcast. Where I can escape my reality for a little while by uh, regaling to you, these uh, fantasy comic book companies that exist only in my head, and I don't know why I think about them so much. Well, I guess I just told you, because I like to escape reality. But um, I have a new company. It's not that new to me. I've been thinking about it for years. It's not really that well thought out. So I'm going to be rambling a lot, and uh, drinking a lot, and... But I just wanted to do a podcast, have an excuse to do a podcast. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk about this, a new comic book company, well, new to you. And it's kind of the opposite. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast, almost every, the majority of episodes, the vast majority are about Amazing Comics, a comic company that has existed from 1940 till now, even though I've only delineated the... 60 years up to 2000 and I'm going to stop there Um, last issue I promised to maybe flesh out the last few years last couple decades as far as uh, amazing tales goes Um, there were some things I hadn't quite worked out from the 70s on Uh, and also amazing spotlight which is our like showcase slash Marvel premiere type comic and uh, I've been working on them a lot I've uh, got most of them fleshed out to the 80s at least and definitely um, put in a lot of titles but I'm not quite done definitely not up to 2000 that might take a while so I might come back to that at one point Um, I might do it in 10 years or on my deathbed I don't know 
but uh, I've pretty much given you 60 years of the Amazing Comics group. And uh, if I don't do that next episode where I flesh out that last chunk, I think it'll be fine. But in the meantime, I wanted to talk about this comic company I've been thinking about for years. And it's based on, uh, just like Amazing Tales, lots of real-world things that happened. And it's kind of um, welding a few comic companies. And unlike Amazing Tales, which we had a huge budget because we had a, a unique situation like Charlton Comics did where we published our own comics, printed them, we uh, distributed them. So we had all this extra money. We could pay the highest rates. So it was like, you know, a dream team, a murderer's row of great artists and writers I could afford to have at, at my whim. This one's the opposite. It's kind of like a bargain basement comp, comic company where I have to uh, imagine that it, I don't, I'm a pretty small company. This company doesn't have a lot of money. But there's lots of amazing shit out there that they could publish. And I don't even have a name for this comic company. We could call it Basement Comics or, I don't know, Skid Row Comics or uh, Welfare Cheese Comics. I don't know. But it's based on a lot of comic companies that existed in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, a lot of these guys were millionaires, but they managed to do get certain properties and uh, publish a lot of decent reprints of some great shit that was just lying dormant. Decades old stuff that was amazing. And this is before graphic novels, so... And you know how it is now where everything's reprinted. So being a teenager in the 80s, like, we really appreciated some of this shit. It's like, oh, I've always read about this comic company from the 60s. So this chump over here somehow managed to buy them, the rights to them. Probably wasn't a lot. Um, back then, it was probably just like eh, $10,000 or, I don't know, $4,000 for to buy the rights to these defunct characters that were basically, as far as the corporations that owned them were concerned, were just dead weight, nothing. You know, they, they were never going to revive them. They, they saw no profit in it. So let's start... I figure, like, the late 70s, this comic company starts. And around the late 70s, a lot of the Golden Age comics from the birth of comics in the late 30s, throughout, like, 45, and even up to, like, I think 1950, went into public domain. Um, The public domain laws were different then. Now, like, we've had a couple of extensions from Congress. uh, Basically urged on by Disney. They even call them the Disney laws, copyright laws, where basically Disney was so chuffed that Mickey Mouse was going to go into public domain sometime in the 80s, I think it was supposed to, according to the old laws. So they lobbied Congress. Um, (laughs) They basically made Congress pass a law that only they cared about. Well, a lot of people cared about it, but they basically, one corporation got to write their own law with their lobbying money, and uh, it extended the copyrights. So Mickey Mouse is still not in the public domain because there was a later one. I believe in the early 2000s, they had another extension. 
So now Mickey Mouse gets another, I don't know, 20 years where he's not in the public domain. So, but in the late 70s, around that time, a lot of these Golden Age comics went in the public domain. Some of them, even before then, just because these guys didn't even renew the copyright. Back then, you'd have to renew the copyright every, I think it was roughly every 10 years. If you didn't publish a comic in 10 years about the character, it was just public, it was like, you lost the copyright. So, um, a famous example of that um, is Night of the Living Dead, which is even more of an extreme example. The film, Night of the Living Dead by George Romero. That movie, somebody screwed up when they were editing it and forgot to put the copyright notice uh, on the first, you know, shot. Like, you're supposed to print that, put it on the film. It just never happened. So that movie, which millions and millions of people have seen probably sold still plays in theaters um, is on TV all the time because it's free was in the public domain from the start because they screwed up a lot of these comic book companies back in the 40s they were mobsters they didn't give a shit about comics once they're, the money dried up they didn't give a sh- two shits they didn't think about IP back then like oh I've got this great character named uh the Green Llama, and uh, I better make sure to renew the copyright every eight years because who knows, we might have a revival. Those guys just went on to some other shady business and uh, forgot about that shit. So, suffice to say, by the late 70s, they were like fanzines, just freely publishing all these old Golden Age comics. Um, all the early superheroes that were at Marvel DC, and because uh, of course, they made sure to renew their copyrights. And, um, I mean, this is some good shit we're talking about. I mean, it's like Basil Wolverton's comics and Fletcher Hanks' crazy shit. And just basically a lot of those uh, great Golden Age heroes. Daredevil by Lev, Lev Gleason's version. And, uh, you know, the Black Terror. Cool-looking hero. Pretty kick-ass. He's got a skull and crossbones on his chest and all black and uh, kind of looks like the Punisher almost like some weird version of the Punisher so there's all these great characters just sitting there fallow and in the late 70s some of these comic geek guys who had like fanzines some of them had kind of like semi not just fanzines they were like little magazines black and white usually because they didn't have a lot of money and they'd reprint these things so I figure because this company is like no low budget comics. Maybe that'll be the name. I like that. It sounds good. Low budget comics. The first thing they would reprint are these free Golden Age comics. So, of course, a lot of the Golden Age comics sucked. Uh, I've said this before. The Golden Age should be called the Crappy Age or the the Duty Age. A lot of really dreck shit was passing. Onto the newsstands. It was, uh, yeah, yeah, passing like a stool onto the newsstands. It was, um, you know, these publishers didn't care. The editors didn't care. They were just like, we got to fill pages. This guy can barely draw, but at least it's a superhero comic. The story doesn't make any sense, but it's still some five-year-old will read it and, you know, give us a dime to read it. So there's a lot of dreck there. But there's also some great stuff. Like I said earlier, you know, 
Basil Wolverton stuff. That was in the public domain when I was a kid. I all these weird little publishers were putting out little Space Hawk things, one shots, and some of his horror comics in the fifties. Um, great stuff, and uh, I, I believe even his Powerhouse Pepper is funny stuff, which strangely enough was published by Atlas, Timely slash Atlas. That somehow even got in the public domain. I guess Marvel fucked up. And I just read an interesting article. I was kind of, I was doing a little research and I was looking at public domain. When these characters went in the public domain, uh, it seemed by the late 70s they were. Because when I was a kid, I remember these fanzines, seeing them in catalogs like, we're reprinting Daredevil versus the Claw, the classic epic where the Lev Gleason Daredevil fought his master Fu Manchu type villain, the Claw. It was like one of the great Golden Age stories. So things like that were being reprinted. They weren't getting sued. Nobody, there was nobody there to sue them. Nobody owned this shit anymore. So I figure the one thing, though, this is the tricky part about low-budget comics, is I, I, I don't know. I think a lot of people agree with me. I, superhero comics do not look good black-white. I don't want to read a black-and-white reprint of Spider-Man comics. Superhero comics got to have color. It's a... Uh, I don't know. It's just a thing. I love black and white comics. I love undergrounds. I love independent comics. Guys like Dan Klaus, Arkham. But something about superior comics just doesn't work without the color. So here's the tricky part because, you know, it's not like fanzines and low-budget magazines were printing in color. In the early 80s, they were. Somehow there was enough of a direct market that small publishers like Eclipse... And other little publishers, you know, during the big boom of, uh, you know, first comics, all these companies coming out, they managed to, they could uh, afford color. But I'm thinking, so I have to have another little uh, point of departure for my alternate history here, like I did with uh, Amazing Comics. So I'm thinking, I don't know if this sounds too crazy, but in Sparta, Illinois, there was a publishing, I'm sorry, a printing press company called World Color Press. They published basically every newsstand comic in America. Gold Key sent them their comics. Charlton, Marvel, DC. It was just pretty much the central. Every comic book was published there. That was their business. This tiny little town, Sparta, Illinois, their one big business was this publishing plant, which was known for printing every comic out there. It was the place to go to print your comics. And I was thinking maybe this editor or founder of this low-budget comics, really savvy businessman. So he goes to World Color because they got to keep their presses going. And it's always good to have more stuff to print because, uh, yeah, the the, uh, presses have to keep going. You don't want them laying fallow. It costs money. So he goes to this guy and he says, hey, We'll basically have a partnership. I know I don't have the money to put out like a few comics of color every month. But we could partner up. I'll basically, you'll, uh, you know, you'll print my comics. I'll sell them. And then I'll give you the money I owe you. And we'll keep going like that and see how it goes. And he gives them a little chunk so like it's worth the risk. Because of course if they don't sell... World Color Press ends up printing for free a bunch of comics. Well, millions of comics or thousands of comics. 
But uh, the head of CEO of World Color Press says, yeah, it's worth a gamble. If these sell, you know, at least he'll be paying his printing costs. You know, at least he'll be a client. And on top of that, I'll get a little, you know, a little taste, uh, a little percentage to, over that, you know, if they sell more. So I think there was this fandom, huge comics fandom in the late 70s, well, throughout the 70s and the 60s, that would love if somebody was reprinting full-color Golden Age comics. Uh, the comic store, re- I'm sorry, the direct market comic stores were just starting around that time, starting to make an impact on the comic industry, which catered to comic fans, not just little kids at the drugstore who just wanted to pick up something to read. So... I think they could have sold pretty good, especially would pick the cream of the crop. Every issue would have some beautiful Space Hawk by Basil Wolverton. Maybe in the back would have some crazy Fletcher Hanks reprints just to appeal to guys who like underground comics. Because uh, that's who rediscovered Fletcher Hanks in the 80s was Art Spiegelman at Raw Magazine. It was pretty much the began the whole ball rolling where people were like, well, this guy's so fucking weird. Uh, it's worth reading because he was this, his. You read his comics, and it's like this guy's fucking nuts. So they're kind of fascinating in that respect. They're not good superhero comics. Um, it's not like oh, this is like Stanley, Steve Disco, Spider Man, classic run. It's just bizarro shit. So people might like to read it in the late seventies. A lot of people were still smoking pot. A lot of hippies. So it would have all, just all kinds of stuff like that, but also just standard good superheroes. Um, uh, fiction House, by for example, they had lots of great artists, mostly science fiction, not much superhero stuff. You know, Jungle, they had Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, and they had some of the better artists in the Golden Age after quality comics. Fiction House was kind of like the second highest quality comic book publisher as far as giving a shit about how good artists could draw. So, I figured this would be our first title. It would be like a 64-page, full-color comic. And just kind of a hodgepodge of, you know, it would uh, be an anthology. Uh, Eight or nine, you know, six to eight-page stories in every issue. And uh, try to have full runs so you get at least, if it was a decent superior series, you'd get the whole thing in order so you'd know the whole history of this character so that's how it would start that first title basically free content it's all in the public domain and wouldn't have to pay anyone we got the little deal with world press sorry world press in Sparta, Illinois so they're full color and uh, pretty sure they wouldn't get new stand distribution just yet that might happen in the 80s we'll get to that so the next thing I'm thinking is we publish another comic that is, uh, say, more more underground, kind of an underground. Uh, it's like underground classics. And we could um, just all those great undergrounds in the late 60s, early 70s, like Slow Death. The science fiction stories in Slow Death were... The best thing since EC, I mean, to be honest, a lot of them were better than anything EC ever did because EC had a deal with, you know, 
they couldn't put like really adult shit. And uh, there's some stories in the slow to, to this day. I, I figure some of the best comic stories ever written, like really moving, profound shit with amazing art, of course. You got Richard Corbin, Jack Jackson, uh, Rand Holmes, all these like impeccable cartoonists who actually like live up to the EC legacy. And so I was figuring we could have an anthology comic too, which might have you know other things like um great fanzine artists of the late 70s that you know weren't even working at Marvel Marvel they were below Marvel's radar even though they were drawn way better guys like Gene Day and you know some of these great fanzine artists and it would basically be like our star reach but it would have lots of underground reprints now of course those are not in the public domain that wouldn't be free but I'm pretty sure a lot of these underground artists after making it through the rocky 70s when undergrounds died tanked out around 75 I'm sure they would not mind getting a nice little fee for reprinting their old shit. It wouldn't be as much as paying like a new artist to come up with a new story. It's like, you already did the work. Can we reprint this shit for a little small fee, you know? And uh, and maybe there's royalties if it sells a lot. You know, we'll give you a little few percentage points of the sales. So it's not really they got anything to lose. Nobody was reprinting this these great underground comics. In fact, some of them still have not been reprinted to this day. Slow Death. Every issue was pretty fucking amazing. Like, some of the best comics ever made. I think Fantagraphics might be working on a... Finally coming out with an anthology, or Last Gasp, I should say. But it's still not out. In 2022. I think a lot of kids one of the direct market stores who missed out on those early undergrounds would have been thrilled to see some of these stories reprinted, especially the Corbin stuff. And so it would kind of be like our little comic size version of Heavy Metal, which was very popular at the time. Those stories were very Heavy Metal-y. In fact, Richard Corbin went on to do some of the best stuff for Heavy Metal. So that would be the second title we have. Probably not 64 pages. Well, no, actually it would be. Because we might also be reprinting stuff from other countries. It's not like they had any chance to get a foothold in America. Nobody was going to reprint some cool, like, Alan Moore's comic strips from Sounds Magazine. Which are pretty fucking good. In the late 70s, Alan Moore did this uh, half-page weekly comic strip. Um, The Stars My Degradation for Sounds. And he drew it. This is back when Alan Moore was a writer-artist. And they're pretty fucking good. Alan Moore is pretty good. Um, Not like a great natural cartoonist. You could tell he's working. He's sweating. But man, he sweated. It's There's some fucking line work in those. He's he's using lots of ink. And he's using it well. It's, It's pretty fucking good. If Alan Moore didn't just become, you know, if he kept with his art... He would have been one of the great underground cartoonists, I think, if undergrounds kept going. Yeah, he wanted them to. It was almost like his way of extending the underground comics. There really wasn't much of an underground comic market after the mid-70s. It was kind of a dead thing. But in Sounds Magazine, the English weekly music magazine, he was doing this amazing shit. Uh, So was Savage Pencil. One of the great cartoonists, I think, of all time. Just amazing, bizarre cartoonists. So there's all these guys that back in the late 70s, they didn't, people didn't know who they were. 
there wasn't a high ticket on them. Uh, they were just trying to make it, whatever, get a little money so they could score drugs and buy beer. So I don't think it would be crazy to think like, yeah, we could be reprinting Alan Moore stuff from England, his early weird underground shit. Maybe some crazy manga from Japan, the more adult uh, underground manga. It's not like anybody gave a shit about any kind of manga in the late 70s in America. I'm sure some Japanese publisher would be like, yeah, pay us a little. At least it'll give us exposure. Maybe people will like it to buy more. So it would just be this great anthology on the cheap. But uh, I think feasibly, it would be amazing shit we could get on the cheap. Like I said, those underground comics, they were just, they were never going to get reprinted again. Those guys got their money and it was over. So if we just said, eh, we'll give you like, I don't know, $10 a page. And uh, can we reprint them? Because back then, a lot of comic companies didn't even give reprint fees. And if they did, it was pretty fucking little. It was like $2 a page to reprint your stuff. You get a little, whatever. They threw you a bone. So, and I'm sure these underground guys, I have a feeling they were in dire straits in these middle-aged, you know, middle-class comic book artists. Um I'm sure they would have just been like, yeah, anything. Uh, I'm Jones in for heroin. Because some of them, you know, the 70s weren't kind to them. They didn't make it out okay. So um, so that's the first couple titles we got going. And also I'm thinking, um, like I said, the Fletcher Hank stuff, maybe that'll be in the underground comic. The, The Golden Age comic, our first comic... We'll just kind of be like, you know, the straight superheroes. Um, we'll have Basil Wolverton, Space Hawk in there. Um, even though it's a little wonky because it's Basil Wolverton. But still, it'll basically be like Daredevil and Black Terror and all that other stuff. And uh, random short stories from the Golden Age. Just good stuff. The best stuff we can find. And then the Underground one will have, you know, not just Undergrounds. But anything kind of wonky in comics history that's in the public domain, bizarro shit, you know. Some of the 50s EC horror comic knockoffs. Uh, a lot of companies ripped off EC and had their own gory horror comics. And um, I guess I should give a trigger warning right now. This is how this episode is going to be. Um, I'm peeing right now. So you're going to hear pee trickling in the background. If that bothers you, uh, turn off now. Um, but I don't want to stop because I'm not good at editing on the podcast software. So I have to keep going or then it's a real bitch for me. Okay. So that, there we go. So then we're going to start acquiring stuff. You know, we're doing pretty good. We got these two comics. It's, you know, late seventies. There's still a market for kind of undergroundy stuff. Just like heavy metal proved. It was an amazing success. And, um, and also there's like comic geeks who are going to these new comic book stores, direct market stores, and they are thrilled to be able to buy these old reprints, which they can't afford to buy the originals. So I think there'd be a nice little market for both titles. But then, so we, the little money we got, we start acquiring stuff. And uh, I figured the first company that would be that hard, they didn't have much, so it wouldn't even cost that much. And they... You know, they were dead. They were pretty much dead. It's not like they were owned by some huge corporation, their their IP. And that would be 
Skywald. So, um, in the early 60s, uh, as any comic fan knows, Warren Comics started publishing. They decided to circumvent normal comic book-sized comics and just put out magazine-sized comics, black and white magazines. Due to that, they did not have to submit their comics to the Comic Book Code Authority, which meant they could show more gore, maybe show, like, more booby. I don't think they could show nipple. I don't think they ever went that far. They, they knew there was a line. But they were, and they were definitely more adult. They were appealing to maybe a 16-year-old audience instead of a 12-year-old audience, like most comic books were. And they were horror, most, you know, horror titles, mostly. And they were a raging success. Huge. They did very well. All through the 60s and 70s. So in the late 60s, a lot of little companies sprang up trying to, you know, you know, rip them off, pay homage to them, whatever you want to call it. Um, a lot of them were pretty bad. Um, even Marvel got in the game. Marvel started putting out these horror black and white magazines in the early 70s, trying to compete with James Warren, uh, the Warren comics. Um, did pretty good for a while, but still Warren kept going. They were the kings. But there was this one little company, Skywald. And it was a ex-Marvel staffer from the, you know, Marvel Age of Comics, Saul Brodsky, and this other guy, Israel Waldman. And they shoved their names together and called it Skywald. They figured they'd make a dent by ripping off the Warren Comics model, creepy, eerie, and such. They had amazing artists, though. And, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. They were a startup company, not a lot of financial backing. But they were... Someone there, one of the editors, had a good eye. Pretty sure it wasn't Saul Brodsky and Israel Waldman. Those guys were old school. They probably would have hired Don Heck. But they had an editor there who was, like, getting Jeff Jones to work for them. Back when Jeff Jones wasn't that known and you could afford him if you were Skywald. Um, some of the great artists of the late 70s, a lot up from fanzines, you know, Mike Kaluta, late 70s. Um, I'm sorry, late 60s, early 70s, he was still doing fanzines. I mean, a lot of those guys were Wrightson was too, Bernie Wrightson. Though Skywall didn't get that much Bernie Wrightson. I think he was already ensconced with Warren by that point. Uh, no, I think I'm wrong. He was just starting to work for DC, little things here and there. But there's some good shit in those Skywall comics. Maybe they published 25 comics total. They had like... Uh, three horror titles, two or three horror titles. I think none of them lasted longer than, I don't know, five to ten issues, something like that. See, like I said, this I didn't even do any research for this one. I'm just, I just needed to do a podcast. But you can look it up. Skywalt lasted like a year or two. But they, I mean, God, just the painted covers by like Jeff Jones. and I think they got some of the great Warren artists to work for them too. They poached a few here and there when they could afford it. So there's a nice little catalog, a nice chunk of shit that by the late 70s, early 80s, nobody was drawn at that kind of level. There was no, like, guys like Jeff Jones. All those guys left to do portfolios because they were tired of getting paid shit by the comic companies like Marvel and DC. And also, they didn't want to draw Spider-Man. They didn't want to fucking draw superheroes. So all of those guys, of course, dabbled with Marvel and DC, but they all left. They were just for tired of that shit you know they wanted to do something more adult um, less juvenile 
But, um, so I think if you're at a direct, a direct comic store in the early 80s and you're seeing a new comic with like, whoa, Jeff Jones. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, every now and then the Warren comics would reprint like the guys who don't draw anymore. Like, oh, this is an all Bernie Wrightson issue. Beautiful black and white art. I'd be like fucking cream in my pants. Just like, oh my God. Because I knew these artists. We all knew these artists. They were superstars. But they all left comics in the mid-70s. They were tired of being, you know, plantation workers. And uh, they, you know, escaped. And good for them. They should have. Because the comic companies treated them like didn't recognize how great they were. Because, I mean, some of their shit's the best comics of all time. So, it's, uh... Yeah, so would buy Skywalt... Which probably went for peanuts. I'm sure it was a few thousand dollars. They were just sitting there. Um, I don't even know if they owned the copyrights anymore. They might have segued into public domain just by not being renewed. Though it was pretty quick. So they pretty much ended around 72, 73, something like that. Early 70s. But who knows? It was a pretty fly-by-night operation. But either way, I'm pretty sure those guys would have been like, Yeah, sure, take them off our hands. Give us a few thou. We don't care. So that would be my first acquisition. So now, in our underground type comic, uh, we could start reprinting some of that nice stuff. And um, Skywall to this day is still beloved. They had some good writing. I think Bruce Jones did a lot of stuff for him. One of the great writers of the 70s. Uh, underground did some stuff, you know, for uh, Marvel every now and then. Um, back then, he, I just found out that Bruce Jones did a Red Sonja in, like, 74. Um, I didn't think he went mainstream until those Kazars he did in the early 80s. Um, but, yeah, every now and then he dabbled. But for the most part, he wrote for Warren Comics. Did a, I don't know, not hundreds. Must have, could have done a hundred scripts for Warren Comics. Some of the best stories ever written in that time were Bruce Jones stories. They weren't lauded. It's not like... Oh, this is like X-Men, Giant Size X-Men number one by fans. But people who like good comics, those were amazing. They were like written for adults. He was a really good writer, especially in the comics field, which isn't saying a lot. It's, um, you know, it's like saying someone's the tallest midget. But he was really good. So, you know, Skywald had some of his stuff. We'd be reprinting that. And it would all be in that one anthology title. 64 pages a month. That would be not all color. So it would be cheaper to produce. But, you know, maybe we'd have 16 pages of color in issue to get, like, some of Corbin's color stuff in there when we print his color undergrounds. And um, when we do Fletcher Hanks reprints. And another thing I uh, about this uh, comic, it would be one of the best-looking comics on the stands. Because there was a comic publisher in the early 80s called Pacific Comics. That deserves a whole episode of, like, what if what would happen if they didn't go under. They only lasted a few years, but every almost everything they published was fucking choice. It basically was, like, if a super knowledgeable comic fan with really good taste ran a comic company. They had some of the best names of all time working for them, even though they were this small independent. But the reason why they had these connections with these great artists, because in the 70s, they were Shanes and Shanes, the, the Shanes brothers. 
and they put out uh, uh, hundreds of portfolios because that was the thing in the 70s all these comic artists would be like fuck that I don't even need to draw comics I'm going to put out portfolios beautifully drawn beautifully printed art portfolios and apparently these guys lived off of it because they never had to draw comics for another 10 years Uh, they probably had other commercial art and stuff and I remember as a kid, like, these beautiful portfolios would come out every month in the catalog. You'd see, like, oh, this great artist has a portfolio now. And so all of this art, though, has really never been reprinted because they're portfolios, you know, right? It's like that format is over. Nobody really wants to buy an envelope with four plates in it. It's uh, kind of odd. But they were huge in the 70s. And Shane's and Shane's was the absolute... You know, they were like the the Walmart of uh, well, they weren't that unethical. But I'm saying, they were the, they were the one, the the big portfolio guy. They were just cranking them out. Every great artist in comics, they'd hook up with them, have them put out a portfolio. Bernie Wrights and Jeff Jones, Mike Kaluta, Barry Smith, Neil Adams, just beautiful shit. So, I noticed in the every now and then Pacific Comics in the early '80s. Because, you know, they knew these artists. They probably just paid them a little reprint fee. They'd use them for their covers. So in the early 80s, if you're like a comic fan who knows about all these great artists from the 70s who stopped working, there's a new comic with a fucking beautiful Bernie Wrightson cover. Even even Marvel, with all their money, couldn't get Bernie Wrightson to draw a beautiful cover for them in the early 80s. They could have, but they were stupid. And they were like, ah, for less money we could pay this hack to draw something but believe me if you were a comic fan in the early 80s at a direct market store yeah I'd see some little black and white comic with a Bernie Wrightson cover I'd look again I'd I'd give it a second look I wouldn't just be like oh what's this dinky little comic I'd be like fuck amazing Bernie Wrightson cover at the very least I'll flip through it and um, so a lot of our covers would be these amazing just beautiful art just lying around which will never be reprinted to this day. Every now and then they come out with books that will reprint like, oh, the art of Barry Smith and they'll reprint that stuff. But there's so many great portfolios that that artist just kind of like lost to time. Every now and then it'll pop up as a cover of something or a little backup article about of course on the internet you can find it. But yeah, some beautiful fucking art. So our covers would be amazing for not much money because it'd be reprints but there'd be reprints of things that nobody saw because those portfolios a lot of them were like 500 print run you know numbered 1 to 500 a thousand at most so only like a thousand super fans in the early 70s bought these things maybe 500 they paid they were expensive way more than a comic book because they were on nice paper and they were kind of prestigious but, yeah, that's another thing about this, like, uh, heavy metal-type comic. It would have that going for it. And then just fishing around, reprinting stuff. But there's amazing stuff in comics history that's never been reprinted. So, okay, we got Skywalt. Pretty much most of that would be just be funneled into that. It's not like it's going to get its own separate comic. It's just more fodder for the reprint mill of the comic. So next, we're doing another acquisition. This one probably wouldn't cost a lot either. Late 70s, early 80s. And you know I've talked about this a lot. 
on my beloved Atlas Comics, the mid-70s Vengeance Incorporated comic company that tried to take down Marvel and failed miserably. Lasted for a year, but had some great fucking shit. And, uh, you know, the early 80s, it's like Howard Chicken's coming back to commas, getting a name for himself, you know, doing American flag. I mean, I think we'd buy Atlas before that. But, you know, you got two issues of The Scorpion by Howard Chicken. You got Wolf the Barbarian by Larry Hama. You got some beautiful fucking Frank Thorne, Son of Dracula shit. You got their black and white titles, a handful, which had some of the fucking best comics of all time, like beautiful Russ Heath, beautiful John Severin, Neil Adams, um, early Walt Simons and stuff that's gorgeous. Um, so they're black and white comics. Once again, it was basically getting some more Skywald. They were trying to compete with Warren Comics too. And there's some amazing shit in there. But their color comics, which like I said, only lasted a year, Almost all of them are, I don't know, I still think better than most of the, your average crappy Marvel DC comics from the early 80s. I mean, yeah, sure, there was like Claremont and Burr were doing X-Men, which when you're a kid seems amazing, and the art's still beautiful. Frank Miller's doing Daredevil, but think of all the other comics of Marvel that, and DC, like, oh, The Flash. You couldn't pay me to read A Flash from 1981. I, it just it's, it seems like dreck. Most of DC was dreck, you know? Around that time, I think the new Teen Titans started, which I liked as a kid. And now I look back, and that was pretty crappy, too. So these Atlas comics, especially with their, like, more violent edge, I don't know how Atlas did it. They seem to have a deal with the comic code. Maybe they were paying them off. They got away with a lot more crazy shit than I've ever seen in a Marvel DC comic. I don't know what was going on there. So in the early 80s, that would appeal to the direct market people who were starting to buy the early Pacific comics, the early first comics which had more you know slightly more adult you know more violence a little more sexual so that would be our next acquisition i'm pretty sure that would be dirt cheap atlas was just basically made as a a revenge against marvel by martin goodman and his son when it went under they went back to publishing well they never stopped but they went back to focusing on their skin magazines i think they published jugs or something or Chic or one of the classic old semi uh, third tier porn mags. Probably profitable as hell, but you know, no, it's no Playboy or not even Penthouse or not even Wii. But um, yeah, just publishing all random shit. I'm pretty sure they never once thought, oh, we got something here. These Atlas comics, we better, whatever, we, we can bring them back. They were probably just disgusted with the whole idea that they did it. They were probably ashamed. Like, what were we thinking? Fuck. So, we'll swoop in, buy that shit for a pittance. I'm figuring this is till the late 70s, because Atlas ended in 75. I'm sure, like, the next year we could have bought them for nothing. Just like, guys, you are so done. I'm sure you just want to... We'll give you something for them. And so that would just give us a nice little chunk so now we're getting some, like, titles, even though they only lasted a few issues. So I'm thinking about maybe having, like, a showcase title pop up around now. And uh, we could um, not only, like, um, some of the better, really good Golden Age stories, 
um, like Daredevil versus the Claw, some of the some of the Love Gleason comics by Charles Byro were like definitely a cut above. But mostly would do like you know all these Atlas comics, which the longest one lasted four issues. The color ones would be you know like oh we'll have give them four issues in this like showcase title, and then basically it'll be a mini series, even though it's supposed to go on. And who knows? Maybe by this time we'll have enough money to where like. You know, like Larry Hama, we could convince him to finish at least the story arc of Wolf the Barbarian. Get some great fan artists like Gene Day to draw it. Wouldn't be that expensive, you know? He started working for Marvel in the late 70s or, well, 77, 78, but eh, maybe 79. So maybe we'd get him before he became a Marvel guy and we could, you know, we could afford it. And Larry Hama, you know, before he did G.I. Joe, he wasn't a big name. It wasn't much. So little things like that would start to like trickle in, like actually making new content, not just reprinting stuff. And uh, definitely some of those Atlas comics need to be finished. I mean, they ended on cliffhangers. So um, Rich Buckler, uh, I've talked about Demon Hunter many times, which was an Atlas comic. Great character, great um, concept that you could imagine going on for 100 issues. And it was only one issue and doesn't conclude, you know, satisfactory. Sorry, yeah, satisfactorily. Okay, the booze is taking effect. So it's, um, yeah, Rich Buckler did the kind of black and white fanzine type stuff in the late 70s. He had his own, like, comic. So I'm pretty sure we could convince him, and he wasn't that expensive, to be like, hey, you want to finish Demon Hunter? We own the rights now. You can uh, finish it up. So maybe that would be a six issue run, and this, uh, low budget spot you know showcase magazine so then we got three titles black and white atlas comics are going to be more fodder for our our cool anthology comic and then uh the color comics will be part of a burgeoning line of uh not just you know beyond our golden age public domain reprints and um oh and also i, sh- I should have said this too um basil wolverton's 40s humor stuff which, you know, many underground people have said, like, he was kind of like the godfather of underground comics. Him and Harvey Kurtzman. Harvey Kurtzman more so, because of Mad Magazine. But Basil Wolverton, his style, that grotesque style he drew in, really unhinged looking. I'm pretty sure, like, his humorous comics, that would go in our, you know, underground-y type, heavy metal type comic. Because, uh, you know, I'm sure, like, pot-smoking kids would love that shit. It's just nuts, and fun to look at and it's Basil Wolverton so we kind of divvy stuff up and um, okay so next is uh, I guess not much of a it's more of an acquisition and this is based on real life so in the late 70s I'm pretty sure it was the late 70s there's this guy called John Colobano John Colobano and uh, he was like a fancying guy and I don't know if he won the lottery or if his dad was a billionaire, but this little fanzine guy bought the 1960s comic company Tower, which was probably some of the best superhero comics of the 60s. I'm sorry, a lot of them were better than the stuff Marvel was putting out. And because um, it was Wally Wood was behind it. Not only did Wally Wood draw a lot of the titles and beautifully, but he was actually creating this whole universe kind of came up with a lot of the concepts and it was a real novel concept it was these 
kind of mixing the whole Man from Uncle James Bond thing that was popular in the mid 60s with superheroes. So all these superheroes work for like, they're called Thunder Agents, and Thunder stands for God knows what. Uh, the higher um, underwear, neutron, defense of Earth resources. Some stupid a- acronym like SHIELD or UNCLE. And and they showed these superheroes to basically be like salary men, <laughs> like working stiffs. They worked for the government, like low-level bureaucrats. They'd always be complaining about how, like, uh, can I put in overtime? I just fought eight supervillains this week. And they're like, shut up. You don't, you have too much overtime. So I had this real kind of funny little conceit. I mean, the action was amazing. It wasn't like jokey, ha-ha. The, the battles were amazing, amazing, dramatic, cool villains. He was fighting these amazing villains and these long, great stories. But they also had this nice little thing of, like, it was more adult, if you will. It was like any adult could identify with these characters. Like, oh, yeah, I hate my boss, too. He's a dick. So, and then, and not only did Wally would draw a lot of them, he brought in, like, the cream of the crop, Gil Kane, he brought in a draw him, and he just got some of the best artists from the late mid to late sixties to draw these. So it's a very beloved comic book company, very beloved uh, superhero line that only had like three years to shine, and then they didn't make it. A lot of fan fanzines in the seventies would have like drawings of them, like almost like what I'm doing now, like fan fiction, like ah, oh, what if I wish they kept going and. You know, I'm going to draw my own little comic of Dynamo and uh, whatever. So this guy, John Calabano, bought Thunder Agents in the late 70s and started printing up black and white, you know, not very slick versions of them. You know. They had color covers, but they were black and white inside, newsprint. And later on, he actually, in the early 80s, when the direct market got more lucrative, he uh, got a little capital, I guess, and actually put out full-color reprints of them, comic book size, and then even new stories featuring them. So I figure we're not there yet. The reprints would be just fine. So this is going to be a new title. We're going to have a Thunder Agent 64-page comic. And it's just going to reprint all the Thunder Agents. And that'll last us like a few years because they had the Thunder Agents comic, which was 64. Uh, that was one of the weird things about Tower. All their comics were double-sized for like a quarter instead of... 32 pages for a dime. And, but then they also had Dynamo solo comic. They had a No Man solo comic, another hero. They had the Undersea Agents. So they had all these other cut titles. So I figure our title will have at least a few years of reprinting before we have to dip into the kitty and actually pay for new stuff. So, um, yeah, that's our next acquisition. Okay, next, another real world thing. And this is kind of weird. I've been looking up this guy from Canada. Can't find anything about him. He's kind of a mystery figure. I assume he's some kind of rich businessman who was a comic geek when he was a kid. But there's this guy named Roger Broughton. Apparently lives in Canada. And I remember in the early 80s when I was, you know, the black and white boom. Uh, you know, I was always checking out all the comics like, well, what the fuck is this? There's a lot of weird shit coming out all every month. You never know what would come out. It wasn't, you know... Those black and white comics were just like legion. There was hundreds of them. Every few months, it's like, shit, this is a crazy concept. But there was this one comic called Corbo. 
and it was Sword in the Stone Publications. Never heard of this comic company. Never heard of this character because it was new. But some, this guy got Mike Kaluta to draw the cover. And, you know, you didn't see that every day in the early 80s. Or this could be the mid-80s even. And I was just like, whoa, that's a cool Mike Kaluta cover. Of course, when I opened it up, the art isn't nearly as good. It's pretty fanzine-ish, uh, amateurish. But it was this kind of cool character who's like a... I think it was a, he was like a 30s pulp pastiche. Some cool guy with like a ski mask on a motorcycle with two guns and, you know, he fought mobsters. So I gave it a chance. No other, no second issue ever came out. I never found out what happened at Corbo. So, but a few months later, I noticed there's this new company out, black and white, and they're reprinting all the American comics group, comics from the, I guess, late 40s to the late 60s they lasted and uh, if you've listened to the podcast before that's the comic company that was pretty much almost every story is written by this one guy he was the editor and he had a very whimsical writing style Um, if you've ever read like Superman's pal Jibby Olsen or those kind of comics that are just daffy and goofy almost every comic he wrote was like that Um, they had mystery titles and I guess before the Comics Code, they were kind of gory. But then after the Comics Code came in, they just decided to be like, oh, we'll have fun little tales that are kind of humorous, but kind of science fiction-y and kind of just weird. Um, but always kind of lighthearted because this guy, that was his temperament. And uh, Adventures into Forbidden Worlds. And I'm too drunk to think of the other two titles. But they were mainstays of the comics racks, you know, all through the 50s and 60s. Uh, definitely above Charlton. They were, they were higher quality and they weren't printed on, uh, you know, cereal box paper. But uh, their claim to fame, though, their lasting uh, treasure is they, in the late 50s, they started publishing Herbie, the, one of the great comics of comic book, sorry, characters of comic book history. I've talked about Herbie before very lovingly. He's the. Oh, fat, fat, obese kid with a bowl cut and glasses who uh, sucks on lollipops, magic lollipops that give him superpowers. He can travel through time. One one lollipop can help him fly. For the most part, though, they help him travel through time. I think Herbie actually just has natural superpowers. He's basically like has godlike powers. He can do anything, Herbie. And whatever time period he goes to, everyone seems to know him and admire him. But when he returns to our reality, he's just a kid with a verbally abusive dad who every episode, uh, it ends with him calling Herbie a fat little nothing. That was like the, the catchphrase. Uh, why is my son such a fat little nothing? And this is like after Herbie just saved the whole fucking universe or saved his dad business by going back in time and hanging out with some beatnik uh, Iroquois Indians or something. Or just whatever crazy thing they came up with. So, that's a feather in our cap. The main reason is I want Herbie. But all those goofy stories do have, a lot of them have the same amount of daffy, weird, fun charm that Herbie has. So, we're going to have a new comic. And this is going to be just kind of like, you know, like DC had House of Secrets and House of Mystery. And American Comics Group had their lighter-hearted ones that weren't really scary. They were just kind of like, weird things are happening, and more science fiction-y. We're just going to have a comic just reprinting all these goofy stories. And then, you know, 
a lot of gold there's a lot of golden age you know one off mystery tales from the late 40s early 50s especially after EC comes out so we'll be publishing all these in a comic also we're going to have Herbie and I figure Herbie's going to write his own comic and the thing is though I'd like to stretch it out you know because there's there's only like I don't know 25 issues of Herbie 20 so it would be like a probably this one would be 32 pages of Herbie but you know we'd have a Herbie story maybe two but then the third story would be some random funny story from ACG's files that was extra humorous you know the more humorous ones they published um which they did and then I figure even um public domain funny comics from the 40s you know stuff like Booty Rogers all that kind of crazy wacky comics that are lighthearted and fun so and um also some of the Basil Wolverton stuff too so uh yeah I guess I have to already go back and say that underground comic is gonna have Basil Wolverton's like 50s scary stuff but maybe we'll save all the funny stuff for this comic it'll be just like this little humor comic with uh random public domain stuff which includes some of Basil Wolverton's amazing humor comics and Herbie and other Ace Americans comics group funny stories that were in their anthology titles and who knows maybe there's some uh, underground comics that aren't x-rated that were funny um, we could reprint just re- whatever just, it would be like a funny title but I think Herbie had a little cult following people would buy it for Herbie and uh, of course getting a nice fucking funny Basil Wolverton story wouldn't hurt and then all these random other things. So next, and this is once again also based on reality, is after he bought ACG, American Comics Group, the same guy, Roger Broughton. He bought all of the Charlton comics. And that's decades worth of shit. Of course, a lot of it's crap. But he didn't buy the superior titles. That was this weird thing when Charlton went out of business. DC bought all of the superheroes that they had. Which some had a beloved fan base like Blue Beetle and Captain Adam and the Question. But uh, Dick Giordano, who used to work for Charlton during that time in the 60s when they were, Charlton was trying to compete with Marvel with their own little superhero universe, didn't last long. But by the early 80s, Dick Giordano was like editor-in-chief of DC. And it was almost like a gift to him. They were like, we're going to buy Charlton because we know you love these things and you worked on them. Just the superheroes. That's all they give a shit about. That's all that was profitable. I bet they got them for a few thousand. I don't know what they got them for. Probably nothing. But everything else, which is a lot, went to this Roger Broughton guy. Now, Charlton, like I said, lots of crap over decades. But every now and then, just like a broken clock is right twice a day. They had some good shit. Of course, they had tons of Steve Ditko mystery stories. And um, those were... uh, Steve Ditko continued to work for Charlton even when at the height of his Marvel success I think because Charlton let him do whatever he wanted even though Charlton paid way less than Marvel at DC but they didn't give him shit they didn't inter- interfere so basically throughout his lifetime from the 50s to the even early 80s when Charlton went out of business Steve Ditko was cranking out shit for them and uh, so now we got just that fact alone having all these 
mystery stories by Steve Ditko, that's going to go in the same comic that, you know, the American Comics Group, the little mystery, light mystery title. 